Father, we are so encouraged, Father, by the desire for so many to be here on a night when there could easily be so many other reasons to stay away. Father, that is such a clear sign, as, as always, of the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to draw us closer to you through your word. The, the hunger for the word, Father, is such a clear sign of our faith in you and our desire to be closer to you. I thank you for that. And I thank you, Father, that as we've assembled and the Holy Spirit is with us, as always, that uh, we can be taught through his power in us to know the truth. Father, what a gift that was. And we, we uh, often take it for granted. But, Father, how lost we would be and how confused and hopeless times might seem if, if we did not have that teacher with us showing us, Father, that we can trust in you and in your plan and, and know that you are at work for good things for your children, even as we may experience what the world would bring us. And Father, we are uh, as well thankful that uh, as we open the Word tonight, you are faithful to convict us as well. Learning, Father, is a process of change in our hearts, and so with change comes a recognition that where we are is not where we should be. And that recognition, Father, painful though it may be, is, is a part of the love a father has for his children to correct them and bring them up in righteousness. So, Father, thank you for that correction even before we may experience it. We know it is for our good. And all that we do here, Father, I pray that we would glorify you, we would please you, and uh, we hope to see you soon, Father, so that you may give us the full truth as we even now work to understand it with our limited abilities. We pray that you'd be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this week actually is going to be an interesting week. We finished chapter 17, so if you have your Bibles, please open up there. We pick up uh, roughly verse 25, 26, where we left off. I say it's interesting because you're going to look, as you look down the pages of the Bible in front of you, that this is a chapter rich in eschatology. Eschatology is the fancy word we use for the theology of end times, how the world will end, how the age will end, and what God expects and, and plans to do with his creation as he transitions out of one age to another. And Luke, in this part of his chapter, chapter 17, records Jesus in a moment where he begins to delve into some of the end times events in response to a question from the Pharisees. We started last week looking at some of the question that, that precipitated the discussion in the first half of the discussion, but as I mentioned when we last taught, I consciously stopped short of reaching into the verses that got into the true eschatology of chapter 17. Uh, I should mention, by the way, there's another chapter of Luke even deeper in eschatology. That's chapter 21. When we get there, uh, we'll study it uh, in conjunction with Matthew 24 because to really understand that Olivet Discourse, you have to see both Gospel writers' accounts because they dovetail in a way that gives you the full picture. Clearly, we will not get through a full disclosure on eschatology out of what we see today in Luke 17. That's not the purpose of what Luke recorded here today. But it gives you a flavor for it. And uh, as you mark your calendars with me as we move through the study, be sure to show up on the nights of chapter 21 if you have more interest in eschatology because we will spend a considerable amount of time in that chapter and going through the events that it, that it brings up. Let's do a quick review, though, on what we did cover in Luke 17 up to this point. In verses uh, 20 and 21, Jesus had just told the Pharisees that the kingdom that they were curious about, this kingdom that God had promised to the nation of Israel, would arrive so imperceptibly that it would be difficult to notice at first. Similar to his previous description, in fact, in chapter 13, back when we were in that chapter in January, when Jesus compared the kingdom to a mustard seed or to a small amount of leaven in dough, 
It's in that same way that he's saying here, the kingdom in its initial inception will be very small. It will be almost invisible at first. But over time, its existence and its impact on the world will be known to everyone. So it has a growing presence, a growing reality, a growing impact on the world. And we said last week when we studied those verses that that's clearly a picture of how the church, as it's established in Christ's first coming and grows in the time since that day, is the picture of the kingdom that he's discussing here. It's the reality of the kingdom that he's discussing here. That the kingdom that we eventually see in permanent physical form on earth has its beginnings in the church. And it culminates later. That's his message to the Pharisees. But then in verse 22, we said Jesus began to answer to his disciples on this same question. But when he gets to the disciples, the nature of his answer seemed to change. He went from discussing an imperceptible kingdom to one that was so stark so obvious that you wouldn't be fooled by those who would falsely claim that the Messiah had returned. You could rest on the assurance that when, in fact, he returns, you won't miss him. You can't miss him. You won't be fooled. You don't have to worry about someone claiming that he's come back in the meantime because on the day he comes back, it'll be like lightning crossing the sky. No one will miss it. Those two messages seem contradictory on their face until we explored them, as you know, and recognized that they were talking about two different days. The day of his first arrival, and of course, in the day of his crucifixion, that was the day in which the kingdom was established imperceptibly to the world. You know, the day after Christ died, the world was all but forgetting that he existed. Until, of course, his resurrection, and then, of course, Pentecost, and then the church's growth in the world, and over time it became evident what had actually been established. But in the time, in the, in the response he gave to the disciples, he's talking about his second coming. The day we still await, when Christ's return will be obvious to the world. Now, when we studied these verses last time, we understood that these answers were just different points in time. But I want you to know, as we go into the verses today, he stays focused on one of the two points in time. He remains on one of the two for the remainder of the chapter. He is not still talking about both. He gave the Pharisees their answer, but then he moved out of that answer into the second one, and he stays there. So in today's verses, he's going to elaborate on the nature of the time and circumstances concerning his return. So this is, and that's an important thing to mention. I'll come back to it later in the teaching tonight. But what we're looking at here, fundamentally, is an elaboration by Christ on the nature and the timing of his return. The nature of the circumstances surrounding his return. The return that you and I all, you know, look forward to even today. So let's begin in reading Luke 17, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So beginning from there, I reread, in fact, verse 25, which we covered at the very end of our last lesson, but I did that just to help give you some context for the verses that follow it. So in 25, he says, I have to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He sort of concludes the point about there needs to be an intervening event prior to this day that you're expecting, this glorious, triumphant kingdom that you're anticipating from me, the Messiah. He says, before that can happen, there's this intervening event that you all probably don't understand and you certainly didn't expect, 
But you need to understand, you need to begin to be ready for it so that it doesn't shake your faith, it doesn't shake your confidence in who I am and why I came. Moving beyond that, though, he then goes into the description of the days around his return. It's important to note here from the beginning that there were two events, as I mentioned, referenced in his discourse in this chapter. The first, as we said already, was his comment about the establishment of the kingdom in his first inception as he, as he came to earth the first time. And the second here is talking about the events around his uh, second coming. So all the verses after 22 are clearly tied to the moment of his second coming or to the times of his second coming. If not the very moment, if not the very day, certainly in the days nearing that return. And by nearing, I mean in months, in terms of months and a couple of years, not 10, 30, 40, 50s of years. I'm talking about in a very short span of time. We'll look at those in detail today and I'll show you why. But the context of what he says makes clear that he never moves away from a discussion of his second coming or the time surrounding that event. So let's see what we can learn about those times here as we look at what he said. First, we hear that the days of the Son of Man will be similar to the days before Noah's flood or to the days prior to the destruction of Sodom in the days of Lot. Now, when he says, for example, the days of the Son of Man, it's evident from the whole context of this chapter that he's talking about the times of his second coming. That's what the question was from the Pharisees. That's what precipitated the discussion. And everything he said since then has clearly been aligned to that topic. So the days of the Son of Man is a reference to his day, to his coming, to his glory, to the day when he comes in glory. And those days, the days surrounding that event, are going to be just like those two stories from the Old Testament, from Genesis. So what do we learn about the days of his return from these stories? Well, to begin with, the story of Noah. It's in chapter 6 of Genesis, at least the part he's referring to here. And so here's what we hear about the nature of the days prior to the flood. In chapter 6, we know, for example, that the enemy, that Satan himself had become especially active in the events of earth of that day, even to the point of angels, we're told, having sexual relations with women in the world in that day. Genesis 6.1, Now it came about, when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now this is a bit cryptic, or at the very least it's a bit ambiguous, until you understand the Hebrew text that's behind our English translation. There are, in fact, I would say the dominant interpretation of these verses is the one I'm giving you tonight, which is that the demons, that this is a reference here to demons mating with women. The Hebrew word for sons of God is used only in two places in Scripture. Here, and then on, a, on several occasions in the book of Job. So you have here and the book of Job, the only two places this Hebrew word that, that we have interpreted sons of God is used in all the Bible. And in every instance where it's used in Job, it is clear, unequivocally clear, that it's a reference to an angelic being. So where it's being used in Job, it's a reference to an angelic being. Here's the only time it's used in Scripture apart from that. And it's being interpreted as sons of God here, primarily because the interpreters, in my view, uh, felt the ambiguity, you know, felt the fact that it was a bit unclear to them and didn't want to presume too much. And so they used the very literal way the word is used in the Hebrew. It's, it's Elohim and it's Ben, and it's, so it's got the word son in there, it's got the word God in there, it's a phrase in the, in the Hebrew that they interpret extra literally here so as to avoid any chance that they're taking it the wrong way. 
But it's just interesting, interesting to me that when you look at it in Job, it's clearly an angelic beings. For that reason, most interpreters, the vast majority of them, see this as a reference to a time when angelic beings had decided they would take advantage of women and mate with them. And some even go so far as to say the product of that mating are the giants, the Nephilim, that are mentioned a few verses later in Genesis. The point here is that in the days prior to Noah, those days were marked by this intense, active participation from the demonic realm in the lives and the affairs of men. That's not to say they're not active in some level all the time. It's simply to, not, to note how extreme their activity was in the days prior to, second, to the days prior to the flood. Secondly, Genesis goes on in that chapter to tell us of man's own wickedness and that it had reached a notable peak. Genesis 6.5 Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of the God and the earth was filled with violence. That's Genesis 6.5 and Genesis 6.11. So here again, by referencing Noah's day and saying that the days of his own return would be very similar to those days, there's at least two immediate parallels you should probably consider. That maybe demonic activity in the time prior to Christ's return will reach a zenith and that man's own depravity will reach, yet again, another zenith. Now, men have been wicked, to some degree or another, every day since Adam left the garden. So that's nothing new. But in the days before the flood, the Bible makes a point that this wickedness had reached such extreme proportions, that I want you to think about this for a minute, such extreme proportions that the only solution God saw fit to bring to the problem was to wipe out every living thing on the face of the earth but for eight people and the animals they collected in the ark. That's a pretty extreme degree of depravity if God's only response, the only appropriate response for him, was to wipe out everything on the face of the earth. So that gives you a sense of just how it had reached a different level, a level that he could not contend with in any other way. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. So here again, we should expect the days immediately prior to Christ's return to be marked by extreme depravity among men. You only need to reference the story of Lot, which Jesus himself, draws comparison to here, to find further confirmation of this point, of the point being that the, the nature of the times will be marked by human depravity. Because you only have to think about the story of Lot long enough to remember that in the time of the story of Lot, extreme sinfulness was, character, was, was so characteristic of the city that we now use the name of that city to describe a particularly heinous act. That's how depraved that city had become. And if you know the story about Lot, you know how he was ready to sacrifice his own daughters to save uh, uh, his embarrassment before his visitors. I mean, just go back and read the story of Lot and you'll know what I'm talking about. Think about what you may already know about the teaching out of Revelation for the sake of what we will experience in the days prior to his return. You have the enemy himself indwelling a man who we call the Antichrist, ruling the world with an iron fist, and martyrdom marks the day. If you are a Christian, you are martyred. If you do not worship the beast, you are martyred. There is a day to come immediately prior to Christ's return when the world will reach a new zenith for depravity among men and supernatural spiritual activity in the world by the enemy. To the point where the enemy has actually become the ruler of the world in a physical form indwelling the body of a man he will use for that purpose. A man we call the Antichrist. In that way, you see a comparison drawn between those two events and the one that Christ refers to in the future. And I also want to make another point that I think is worth, mention, worth considering as we go on here tonight. There, there's a teaching within the church that says Jesus' return to earth is predicated on the entire world becoming believers first. 
This is a view of eschatology associated with covenantal teaching, for example, uh, in some cases, but not always. But its its basic point is this. Christ's return awaits the last human being on earth becoming a believer. And that until the entire earth is filled with nothing but believers, he remains waiting. And the nature of the purpose of the church is to continue to expand the faith until it reaches the point where we've converted the last human being and that will precipitate his return. There are multiple reasons out of Scripture for why this thinking is flawed and why it contradicts Scripture. But here's just one quick example in passing. Rather than a world converted to the faith, Jesus' return, he says, is prompted by a world of unbelief and depravity. And if you want further confirmation of that, just glance ahead into the next chapter of Luke, chapter 18, verse 8. There's a point in that chapter in verse 8 where Jesus asks a rhetorical question when he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And we'll study this, of course, in the week to come, next week or two, as we look at chapter 18, but I'll show you why when we get there. It's a rhetorical question because the obvious answer from his circumstances is no, he will not find faith on the earth when he returns. He returns to a world that is largely devoid of believers. There are some remaining, but many have been martyred. The church has long since been raptured. And what's predominantly on the earth at that that point is like what it was on the days of Noah before the flood or the days of Lot in Sodom. Extreme depravity, the enemy at a zenith of his power, but yet crushed easily by the word, by the sword out of the mouth of Christ. So now we have this sort of barometer that as a believer we can understand in relative terms how close we are to Jesus' return. Now, notice how I qualified that. It's a relative scale. Because our first and our primary problem is we don't know how bad it can get, right? We, you know it's getting worse than it was last year, <clears throat> so by definition we're closer. But how does that tell me how close? It, it doesn't in an absolute term, it's just in relative terms. But I also want you to understand we don't get there overnight. There are huge leaps toward that in the very last days, understand, but we don't get there overnight. So, You should expect, I should expect, if we understand the Bible, we should expect a steady slide in our culture down to the point of what Christ is describing will be characteristic of the last days. You know, it would be be really nice to optimistically hope the world will keep getting better, but if you know your Bible, it keeps getting worse. And that doesn't mean we don't do what we can do or should do to stand against it. The Christian witness is all about standing out. It's all about salt and light. It's all about showing the opposite of what the world believes to be true. It's all about you know, letting our light shine among men. So it's not about conceding or you know, giving in or just assuming, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. It's all going to go to heck in a handbasket anyway, so I might as well just stay at home and watch American Idol. You know, there's, you know, there's certainly more we should be doing than we're doing in most cases. But there's a difference in doing that versus those who engage in their society, whether through political terms, whether through other societal ways, or through our faith, and they set their goal as making the world peaceful and believing. And until they're able to achieve that, they are going to continue to work to achieve it. Fundamentally, I've got a different goal there. Although it sounds like the same goal, in fact, I've got a fundamentally different goal, and here's why. Because if I become too focused on this notion that I can create a perfect world order, a perfectly peaceful world that God would support that process, in fact, despite what his word says, then when I'm failing to achieve it, I'm only going to work harder at that thing, perhaps to the oblivion of what God would actually have me do if I were open to his message. So I see this most most specifically, I see this in the way many Christians get involved in the political realm. 
We set political goals for what the world should be like politically and we work to get to that political state, forgetting that even if we were successful, it has no bearing on the kingdom of God. Fundamentally, laws don't create Christians. Fundamentally, laws do not make righteousness. If a law could make righteousness, then God's perfect and holy law would have done it centuries ago. Laws do not make righteousness among men. So even if we achieve what we think we're achieving in a political realm, in a spiritual realm, we're wasting our time. The kingdom is built in the hearts of men. The kingdom is built one believer at a time. Witness to individuals so that individuals see the light and they are changed. Let the politics of the world go where it will go because Christ said it's going to go downhill. That's not, you see the difference there? I'm still working to the point of witnessing and building the kingdom, but I'm doing it where it matters, in people, not in societal terms, not in structural terms. Now, have I just set a rule that says you can't participate in politics? No. I mean, you've you got to be careful not to go to the other extreme of this discussion and say, okay, well, Steve said it's wrong to do that. No, what Steve's saying is do what God calls you to do. Just don't get so absorbed in a target that you picked for yourself that when God gives you another target, you're not looking for it. You're not interested in it. You're too busy on the one you picked for yourself. And I think there are not only individuals, but whole Christian entities who have started to do that, in my opinion, and meanwhile, there's, there's no witnessing going on at the individual level. If anything, they're building walls around themselves and society sees them as, as merely being confrontational and invasive into their personal lives and their witnesses may be compromised as a result because the world is not interested in that group anymore. You know what? You can kind of see, I hope, what I'm saying. Understanding what God's plan is for the world frees you up to not worry about it and to deal with individuals. Now, Jesus goes on to give more insight here in the verses I've already read, to move on. He says, people will be oblivious to their circumstances. And I find this particularly interesting. Because he says, just like in Noah's day, just like in Lot's day, these, the people in that day will be carrying on in normal ways. And that's why he mentions what he mentions. Eating, drinking, marriage, building, selling, planting, building. All of those are terms to simply communicate that... God will not give the world any special insight to know that judgment is about to befall them. There's no warning signs. There's no two-minute warning. There's no, you know, last call. There's nothing that precedes the judgment so that the world's behavior would change in the last moment, reflecting the fact that judgment's about to happen. It's a complete opposite to that. There's no reason for them to think anything's going to change. God leaves them in the state they happen to be in in that moment. That, that doesn't mean there isn't witnessing going on on, a, on an individual level. It just means that as a world entirely, there is no clue that the judgment's about to befall them. Think about the fact of how things took place in Noah's day, for example. There was no reason for the world to expect a flood when there had not yet been rain on the earth. And in Lot's day, how would you have anticipated fire and brimstone falling on your city and wiping it out before the moment occurred? There was no indication... There was, God was involved in those moments for other reasons, but it was not to communicate to the world that judgment was coming. Life will seem normal. It'll seem unchanged from the way it's been since the beginning of time. And, and here's the point in all that, I think. If there are men and women today who have deceived themselves into thinking that, you know, I don't have to worry about what I believe today because there'll be some point in the future where I'll have some crucible moment. 
I'll be under some pressured moment where I'll understand what's happening and I'll be able to then assess my circumstances. And if all you're telling me, Steve, is true about God and about how He views sin and about what's happening in this world one day, when we get to that point, I'll know you're right and I'll have a chance in that moment to believe. Because you say, I just have to believe it, I'm fine, right? So I can just do that in a minute. I can do that on my deathbed. I can do that at the moment I start to see the fire coming from the sky. This says you won't. This says there'll be no warning, there'll be no opportunity. So if you're depending on some last-minute awareness of judgment to be your salvation, to be the thing that'll convert you in the last moment, it won't happen. And when judgment arrives, you can't escape. But speaking of escape, there is something else important we learn from these verses, from the comparison he makes both to Noah and to Lot. In both those circumstances, did you know, if you know the stories of Noah and, and Lot, God makes a provision in both those circumstances, for the righteous of their day, so that those who are righteous will not be caught up in the judgment. For example, in the case of Noah, the righteous of Noah's family were able to enter the ark. Interestingly, and I do find this interesting, it's more than just coincidence, they enter the ark seven days prior to the arrival of the floodwaters. There's a period of seven days before God brings judgment, yet they've already been protected. There's this intervening seven-day period. Once the judgment does arrive, though, then they're carried to safety while rest, the rest of the world experiences the judgment of the floodwaters. Now, in the case of Lot, we know angels come into the city specifically to remove Lot and his family. They had to work a little bit to get it done, but they get the family out of the immediate danger zone of the city, just outside the city. They're not entirely out of danger. They're just out of the heart of the city. They still have to flee, they're told. Flee to the mountains or you will perish. So they're not, technically speaking, completely out of harm's way. They're just placed at a point where they can escape safely if they choose to. So, if those two examples are to be used as a picture for us of what the days of Christ's return will be like, then it means that in the days of the Son of Man, in this day of His return, we should expect that God has a plan to rescue the righteous before He brings judgment on the earth. Simple as that. Now, let's put that together with some other scripture so that we can build the picture. We know that from other scripture... And I'm going to summarize this because we're going to go through a lot more of this when we get to chapter 21. Okay, so that's your teaser. But we know from other scripture that there is actually a two-part rescue. That this rescue for the righteousness, this provision for the righteous, takes place in actually two different moments. There's two different rescues that are taking place. First, there is the rescue for the church. The church saints. And you have to understand, when you talk church, that's a very specific definition out of scripture. The church is all those who believed and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which means all men from the day of Pentecost until the day that Christ calls His church to Him. It does not include Old Testament saints. It does not include tribulation saints. They are saints no less, but the church is a specific designation that God Himself assigns to a group of saints that live during a certain period of time. Those who come to know the Messiah as their Messiah between His first coming and His second coming, specifically from Pentecost until an event we call the rapture. So there's a rescue for the church saints who are still present on the earth before God's period of judgment commences. And we call this, the period, this period the rapture. We get that word, the rapture. Uh, it's, a, it's an English transliteration of a Greek word Paul uses in one of his letters. We, we'll talk more about that in chapter 21. But in a nutshell, it's a sudden removal of all believers, both body and soul, from the earth to meet Christ in the clouds and be returned to heaven with him. That's not his second coming. Because Christ never comes to the earth. He's never seen by anybody. He simply comes down and approaches the earth. I call it a flyby. 
He kind of does a flyby in the clouds and takes the believers that are present on earth alive at that moment with him. We also know from Scripture that he also collects, um, he resurrects and gives new bodies to all believers in the church who have already died up to that moment. So all believers in the church who have died and are in the ground, though their souls are with Christ right now, their bodies are still in the ground, those bodies are resurrected in a new form, reunited to the spirit of those who have gone before us, the, then, Paul says, those who are still alive in Christ at that moment will then be captured up in bodily form into a new body instantaneously. And the group of us go to heaven as the church constituted for Christ's sake, the bride, ready for their groom. This is the moment we call the rapture. So for anyone who has lived and died in the faith since Pentecost until the day of that moment, will be gathered together as one body, the body of Christ, the bridegroom and the bride united, and they will go to, a, to a, an event that is described in Revelation chapter 4, and five, in the throne room. That's the first of these two opportunities for God to rescue the righteous. But the book of Revelation also tells us that there are yet more believers produced during the time of tribulation that follows the rapture. So the world is yet again populated with new believers during the time of tribulation. You can read about that in chapter 7 of Revelation and in, uh, throughout the rest of the book from that point forward. This second group brings about the necessity for a second moment of rescue. The mere fact that you have new believers now on the earth after the rapture requires another moment of rescue by God if he's to spare these people from the judgment that they're not due, the judgment that is in fact being poured out on the unrighteous. So by the mere fact that he would bring new faith into the world, it you know, requires that he have another option, another way to provide the rescue that must come as well, that these stories of Noah and Lot would suggest to us will come. And in verse 31 of Luke, going back to the text for Luke tonight, Jesus goes, continues on in his discussion with the disciples to describe that second rescue, to describe the second rescue for the righteous who are yet still on the earth at the point of his second coming. The men and women we would call the tribulation saints. Now, if you know the story of Revelation you know that in the tribulation there's tremendous martyrdom among those who would come to faith during that time. So many do not survive to the moment of his return, but yet some do. And these verses are actually a good proof of that fact because it describes how God will contend with them, how he will protect them. Verse 31 through 33 of Luke. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. The verses I just read, they began with that phrase, on that day, which is a reference to the day, again, of the Son of Man. So on that same day, those who are aware of his arrival should not turn back to retrieve their earthly possessions. Now the image here is the same one as is provided by the story of Lot's wife, which is why Jesus references that moment as he tells us this, these instructions. In the account of Lot in chapter 19 of Genesis, the angels, if you know the story, are sent into the city of Sodom to rescue Lot and to rescue his family. They're removed from the city, from the proper city itself, but yet they're still in danger, and so they're told to flee. But just as judgment begins to fall on the city, and the judgment's already started to fall, it's already there, it's evident, that it's happening. Just as that begins to happen, we're told in chapter 19 of, of Genesis that Lot's wife disobeys the angel's command to not look back. 
she stops and she looks back at the city. And as you know the story, she's turned into a pillar of salt as judgment for that act. The implication from Genesis, I think, is pretty clear in, in, in so much as what happened and why. In Genesis, she looked back on that city as if longing to still be a part of it. In, in the sense that she looked back in a longing way. In a regretful way. I, I regret having to leave this city. It's in that sense that she's looking back. And here's why it was such a, uh, an act worth judgment. Consider her circumstances for a moment. In light of the enormity of her circumstances, in light of what was going on in that city in the moment, and, and, and you know, you and I think of calamity, but have you ever seen supernatural calamity on the scale that was going on in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? None of us have seen that. And, thankfully, as a matter of our faith, none of us ever will. But the point is that she was in the midst of that, and yet her disobedience to look back in that longing way is clear evidence of an unrepentant heart. She was still attached to that city. She still had an attachment to all it represented. Her rescue was actually never possible because her heart had never been persuaded to trust in God rather than to trust in the world that she knew in that city. And her looking back was a physical evidence of what was going on in her heart. And so she was judged over it. Now, And I believe that her event, her, her reason for being included in the initial rescue was so that as her heart betrayed her and she became an example in Scripture through that betrayal, Jesus would have an opportunity to use it here to teach us something about what we should expect in our last day. That in other words, her, her end disposition is no different that she became a pillar of salt than it would have been if she'd been in the city and had fire and brimstone rained on her. God didn't change the outcome of her result. She had the judgment due her for her, faith, uh, for her lack of faith. But by pulling her out of the city long enough to give her that opportunity to show her heart, he got at least the value of using her as an example for you and I today about what would be the case for someone to do the same thing in the day of the Son of Man's return. So what do we draw? What conclusion do we draw? He uses her as a picture of someone who, in the middle of an escape from dire circumstances, in the midst of that moment, you stop and you return to retrieve a trivial possession. You know, the person in a burning house who leaves only to think, oh, I need to go back in there and get my coat. It's that kind of nonsensical behavior that represents the heart here. Or as he gives the other example in verse 33, or in verse 31, a worker in the field who's running away from certain destruction and then stops and returns as if to pick up where he left off in his work. Oh, I forgot to finish that row I was hoeing. What are you thinking? <laughs> the fact that judgment comes means your daily life is irrelevant now. It means that all you kind of thought was normal and regular and part of everyday life, that's all going away. It's all over, for that matter. So to think that you need to run back to it, even for a moment, is clear evidence that you don't understand the judgment. It's clear evidence that your heart is not aware, is not quickened by the Holy Spirit to understand God's return is imminent. It's assuming the person's not crazy. It's assuming they had a sensible reason to go back. And the only sensible reason you would have to go back to your daily life in the midst of judgment is because you don't understand judgment. You think this is the world that matters. You've not appreciated the fact that the judgment means this age is ending, the next one is about to arrive, and the king is coming. If that's not on the forefront of your mind, it's evidence, prima facie evidence, that your heart is not aware of the truth of God. The behavior reveals that. Because unless you want to explain this person as completely crazy, 
completely insane. Nothing else could explain their behavior except a lack of appreciation for what it means that the judgment is arriving. So Christ isn't saying that the behavior in and of itself is the reason you would see judgment. It is because those who would think like that are showing evidence of what their heart holds to be true. Both circumstances, I think, demonstrate utter foolishness and absurdity. Remember, the days of these events will be such that the world of unbelievers, we're told, will not recognize the coming judgment. Remember? They're going to be acting as if daily life is just continuing. They'll be like those kind of people who would say, oh, I need to go back in the house to get my coat. Because to them, it's normal life. Or they'll actually contemplate going back to the field to complete their job because that's what normal life would expect. There's no sense that there's some fundamental change in the world about to happen. They don't appreciate the finality of this moment. All right? He sums it up this way in verse 33. He says, Whoever seeks to keep his life, and I want to explain what he means by that in very specific terms. Who is the person who seeks to keep his life? This is someone who in the face of impending judgment is the one who acts to preserve his life in this world. Who persists in the patterns of regular life here today. Someone who holds to the values of this world. Someone who wishes to retain what he's gained in this world. Think about it. Why do you go back to your coat if you're about to get a new body, go to heaven, and inherit eternal treasures? How much does your coat matter in that context? Only if your treasure is still in this world. Only if this is the world you care about and you have no real interest, much less knowledge, of the next. So the person who thinks like that, who seeks to keep his life in this world, that person, Christ says, will forfeit eternal life. On the other hand, the one who leaves it all behind, the one who counts nothing of this world worthy of his interest, much less his adoration, the one who's willing to give up his life in every form it takes here on this, uh, on this earth, the one who has the insight to see that the last days are what they should be. They are the days when all is changing and nothing of this world will last, nothing matters anymore, and they act accordingly. Like Noah did, for example, in giving up a hundred years of his life to build a boat in the middle of a landlocked region when there had never been any rain before. That's someone who says, I have my view on the next world, not this one. Otherwise, you can't explain his behavior except sheer insanity. Or like Lot, who was willing to leave his home and all that he had in this world. Remember, he didn't take anything with him. There was no sense of, you've got ten minutes, pack everything you can take. It was go. With nothing. He was willing to do that. And why did he do it? On the words of strangers. There's no evidence from Scripture that he knew these men were angels. He knew them only as strangers who had come to town, bearing a message from God, saying, leave tonight, your city is going to be destroyed for its wickedness. Would you do that? I mean, if you want to look at Lot as somebody who is kind of, you know, barely a Christian, living in that city, Sodom, I would have done better than he would have. Okay, would you leave your home and everything you own right now because two strangers come to your door and say, God told me San Antonio is going to be destroyed tomorrow, you need to leave the city if you want to live? Would you do that? I mean, I'm not sure I would, for sure. And the fact that that causes doubt in our minds suggests that just how much Lot had to be willing to trust that he understood that judgment was coming and he didn't look back. Now maybe you have a little sympathy for his wife, too, right? Stupid Lot, leaving us out here like this. Lot, look what you're leaving. Ugh, too late. Christ's return, we're told, will be just such a moment. A moment when the new saints who've been made during the tribulation and who have survived until the end of that period will be separated from the rest of the earth's unbelieving population in a rescue that 
immediately precedes Christ's return. Look at what he says next in the verses of Luke 34 and onward. Look where he goes next to describe the extent of how that moment will look. He gives us some interesting, fascinating detail on that moment. He says, I tell you, on that night, there will be two in bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, this is the disciples, obviously, answering Christ, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Jesus begins, once again, I want to keep pointing this out, he begins in chapter 17, 30, uh, verse 34, he begins by saying, On that night. What night? Well, if we trace it back, through the text, it's got to be the same night as the day mentioned in verse 31. The antecedent for that, you trace back just through the grammar of the text. You go all the way back to verse 31. There's nothing else referenced before since 31 to change the times, to change the context here. We're in the same context. So it's on that same day, which is the same day mentioned in verse 30, which is defined there as the day of the Son of Man. Now, why is it night here rather than day? I believe, and this is not to say that this is the only way you can see it, but I believe this is a reference to the fact that on the time of Christ's return, on the literal moment of his return, we're told out of elsewhere in Scripture that the sky will be dark, the sun will go away, the moon and the stars will go away. Literally, there will be no source of natural light on earth. Now, can you imagine how dark that's going to be? Then the Son of Man, we're told in chapter 19 of Revelation, comes bright as the sun. Now, do you know why everyone sees him and no one misses him? It's the only source of light in the entire world at the moment of his return. And if you're worried about the fact that the world's a globe, go back and if you wish to, listen to the Revelation study that I have available online. And in that, you'll see why out of Scripture, most of the world's population have been condensed down to a region we roughly consider the Middle East today because most of the rest of the world is uninhabitable and destroyed by the point of the time of Christ's return. God has done what he needed to to concentrate men's focus on the one region of the world that's always been his focus. And it's at the point of Christ's return that he goes there. And the world that is left at that point is all perfectly capable of visibly seeing his return in the way he returns because of the nature of the world and the nature of his return. A bright light in the sky when there's no other light available. So I believe that is why the reference changes from day to night in this point because he's now gotten down to the point of the actual moment itself. Not just the day or the times, but the actual moment of his return. And then in that moment, what do we learn? And and I should also mention, because I'm sure it probably caught your attention, because we've been consistent in looking at these verses, always noticing as we tie back that this is a time of his second coming, the time of his second coming, that's been a consistent thing through these verses. It's been very easy to trace that, right? Therefore, This is not the rapture. And so many people jump to this verse and say, look, this is a description of how the rapture will take place. Now, I'm not saying this is inconsistent with the kind of way the rapture will take place. I'm just saying that's not the point of what he's saying here. His point in these verses is his second coming. It just so happens that there's a moment around his second coming which is similar in many respects to the earlier event of the rapture And that would make some sense, right? Because if he's done it once one way, why would he change the way he would do it the next time? Secondly, they're both for the same purpose. They're both rescuing righteous. One is simply a moment reserved for the church because the church as the bride of Christ has a special relationship at the point after the rapture but before this moment. During the tribulation, we're in heaven during a a wedding. 
So let's look at those verses now, just very carefully. If you look at this event that's described in verses 34 through 37, let me take a quick poll. Do you want to be the one taken or the one left? Who wants to be the one taken? Who wants to be the one left? Okay. Now, to help you understand what the right answer is, where, regardless of when you're talking in time, whether it's now, whether it's the rapture, whether it's today in front of us, if somebody is going to, rem- if you have an option to go or stay, your answer should always be, "I want to go where Jesus is." Right? <clears throat> to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, if I die, I know I'm with Christ. That's a good thing. The rapture. Do you want to stay here or do you want to go? I want to go because Christ doesn't come to the earth. I want to go wherever He goes. The second coming. He's staying on earth, folks, so you don't want to be going anywhere. You want to stay here at the moment of his return because that's where he is. So, look at what goes on in these verses. Look at what's said in these verses. In verse 37, after he said there's going to be these two people living normal everyday lives, oblivious to the return, you see that still implicit in the text here? They're living a normal life, supposedly. They're at the mill. They're working. They're grinding. They're just going about their daily business. And then, poof, immediately... I believe it's an immediate thing. I believe it's just moments before Christ's second coming. There is this removal of those who are unrighteous. And what is happening to them? They're all being gathered at the moment and at the place of His return for the purpose of the judgment that comes upon His return. It is clear enough from the text we've already read to know that you want to be the one who stays, not the one who goes. And here's how you know that for sure. Look at verse 37. The disciples ask exactly the same question we're asking right now. They hear of this event when some are left and some are taken. And when you hear that some are taken, what's the first question that comes to mind? Where do they go? If they're taken, where do they go? And what's his answer? It's somewhat cryptic, granted. But he says, where the body is, there also the vultures are gathered. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound good. You know, it doesn't sound like the place I want to be. And it's not meant to be that way, of course. What it's meant to suggest very clearly is there is death and destruction associated with wherever they go. You all know the story out of Revelation chapter 19? What immediately follows Christ's return and his defeat of the enemy and all those who are arrayed against him? What is the next thing that happens in that moment? There's maybe millions, I don't know how many, but let's say millions of dead bodies on the earth. What does he do with them? Birds. He invites the birds of the air to feast on the bodies. If you go look in chapter 19, the birds of the air consume, for the most part, I assume, what has been created by all this death. Where the vultures are, there the bodies are also. I don't think that's a chance connection. I think that's exactly what he's describing here. Is the fact that those who are taken are taken for destruction and, are, and for death. There's a really fantastic illustration of this in the parable that Matthew gives in chapter 13 of essentially the same moment. I want to go to just a, a little bit into that for your sake to see the parallel here because the parallels build, they really reinforce the teaching. Matthew 13:24, And if you, can, if you can turn to Matthew, it'll be helpful because we're going to spend not a long time in it. We're going to read through it quickly, but there's quite a few verses here that go with it. Now, Matthew 13, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. 
the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now jump down to verse 36, because Jesus gives us the benefit here, one of the few times he does this, of interpreting his own parable. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest, now listen to this, the harvest that he just described is the end of the age. And in Scripture, from a Jewish perspective, the end of age is always a reference to how the life in the world we live in now ends and the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom begins. That's the point of what the word age means to the Jew. So he's saying here, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man... Now, here's where I think the method occurs for this two people at the mill, one is taken. This is how I think it happens. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of the fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quick Quick comment here as we move on. That reference to the furnace, I believe, is ultimately fulfilled in the lake of fire. So his point here is to simply sum up their disposition by saying they're going to hell. But in the day of it actually occurring, they first go to this moment where they're, where they're destroyed by Christ physically, their bodies are eaten by, by birds. We know that eventually after the thousand year reign on earth, there is the great white throne judgment where they are eventually judged and thrown into the lake of fire. So it, it comes eventually. Eventually this is their disposition, in other words. Then in verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now you see the whole thing fit together there? He returns... Angels go out, collect the bad guys, if you will. They're judged, and look what's left over, the righteous, in the kingdom. So on his second coming, you want to be here. You don't want to be the one taken away. Unlike in the rapture, where it's the opposite. Now, I want you to get just one other piece of insight here as we near the end of the teaching. This is why, my friends, there is confusing teaching about the nature and the timing of the rapture. Because... For the most part, it stems out of a lack of appreciation for the need to have two of these events and in the fact that they are opposite in the way they're described. The opposite being that in one case you want to leave and in the other case you don't. And if you look at some of the bad teaching that's out there, poor teaching, misunderstood teaching, about the rapture, some who would believe there is no rapture until the very end of tribulation, for example. No, they're mistaking the second event for the rapture. Some who believe there is no rapture because they see believers existing all the way to the end. Well, no, they're forgetting of the fact that God brings new faith to the earth after the rapture. There is a lot of reasons why that teaching has persisted. But in every case that I've studied, it's always traceable to this confusion. To a simple misunderstanding out of Scripture, not necessarily a malintent, but yet a misunderstanding. A poor appreciation of the truth. Scripture is so consistently clear on this, both in analogous ways, in picture form, You know, in a great picture of the rapture and of end times is the way Isaac gets his wife. The father, Abraham, sends his servant 
into the world to choose a bride for his son who stays at home with the father. The servant, being a perfect picture of the Holy Spirit, draws the wife to him, leads the wife home, only to have the son come out before they get home, grab, meet them halfway, and bring the bride home. It's a perfect picture of the rapture taking place. And Isaac, we know, is a picture of Christ out of Scripture. Abraham, we know, is a picture of the Father out of Scripture. So the pictures are perfect in all that. The servant is unnamed because the Holy Spirit's ministry is never to glorify himself. It's always to glorify the Son. And through the Son, the Father. So it's appropriate that he would remain anonymous and unnamed in the parable. That's consistent with his role in the Trinity. It's a perfect picture. And it reemphasizes the fact of a rapture in the fact that Isaac goes out to meet his bride and return her home before she can get there on her own. You and I, that walk back with the Spirit in that story is comparable to our sanctification. Each day, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we get closer to Christ. But we'll never reach it all the way on our own. Christ has to come to us and pick us up, if you will, retrieve us and bring, him, bring us home. That's the rapture. A wonderful picture. It's worth studying if you don't know that story to go back and read it. Last verse is 37. What I wanted to do as we leave tonight, though, is put this in context. Why did he go into this detail here? I can't say with perfect assurance why I know he did that, but I have a feeling I know. Jesus, first of all, he's very near to the point of his arrival in Jerusalem. The scope of of the gospel story here begins to really narrow down and slow down as we get toward the end. You know, we'll go through the first 17 chapters of Luke and cover a long period of time, relatively speaking. We're going to get now, as we go into 18, 19 and beyond, the last four or five chapters of Luke describe a week and a few days after. A few days after. So, uh, it's really narrowing down now on that point of his departure, the departure that we heard in chapter 9 of Luke that he had set his mind on. So, it only makes sense that he would begin to introduce this topic of his return as he approaches the point of his departure. So, the closer he gets to the departure, which is why chapter 21 of Luke has so much emphasis on eschatology, it only makes sense as he gets closer to the point of his departure that he talks more and more fluidly and and concretely about the times of his return. He knows that these men will have that interest immediately once they realize he's leaving. Now, as we move into chapter 18 next week, we're going to end tonight here, but I want to make one point as we end tonight out of 18. Look at the very first verse, just the first verse of chapter 18. Now he was telling them a parable to show them, or to show, that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Why is he telling them that? Why is that the transition? He gives you a better perspective on what he just told them. He's introducing this concept of a return because of the importance of his departure, the reality of his departure, the inevitability of it. But if you're a disciple, if you're a Jewish disciple of Christ who believes in the Messiah, understands the Messiah's role in the world, and you know he's come, then the thought of his departure, as I think I said last time we met, is so difficult to grasp that when it actually occurs, the first and probably most important thing for Jesus to do is reassure them it's not a sign that his mission failed, that his ministry is bankrupt, that his power is void, that his promises are not to be believed. And so he says, I'm going to give you this parable to show you that at all times you ought to pray and to not lose heart. And then remember what I pointed you forward to in that text. I think it was in verse 8 or verse 9. Verse 8. He ends that parable in verse 8, as we'll see next week, saying, but when I return, will I see faith on the earth? No. That should encourage us. Because as you go through this life, in your walk, and you see the world getting worse and worse and worse, 
do not lose heart over that fact because when Jesus returns, He's not going to find faith on the earth. That's expected. That's a part of God's plan. God will judge those who are there on that day for their unbelief. You don't need to use that. You don't need to use these outward worldly signs as some measure for yourself of whether or not the Christian faith is trustworthy about whether Christ is trustworthy, about whether or not what we're saying actually matters, because it is, in, it is the case that the world is going to reject it, by and large. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Self-evidently, no. Meaning in total, meaning a world full of faithful believers, meaning a world ready to receive their Messiah, the whole world standing there waiting on the day he returns? No. No more so than he did during his first coming. So that's his point here. Do not lose faith. Do not lose heart because of that reality. Know that it is in fact expected and therefore, don't worry about it. Dear Heavenly Father, it is an encouragement, Father, I trust for me as well as for others that uh, we would have the, the knowledge that first and foremost, you know how to rescue the righteous. As Peter tells us in his letter, you are not oblivious to the fact that your children are in harm's way as you bring your wrath. And we were not appointed to wrath. You will not permit us to experience it, for it is not what you have in store for those who love you. And Father, we are uh, so thankful for that. Eternally thankful for that, Father. And yet, Father, we are also mindful from the text today that there are so many others for whom that message is lost. Though we do not control their hearts and we are not responsible, Father, for counting the number of those who call you Lord, but we are nonetheless, Father, those you have asked to participate in that process and commanded to take the message. So I pray, Father, we would have a heart for the lost, that we would appreciate the urgency of our times, that we would recognize, Father, that though the world as a whole will not come to know you in the days that we live in now, that does not preclude the neighbor, the friend, the stranger on the street, those we are encountering every day from being one you might call. So I pray, Father, we would have a an awareness of the importance of our witness and of an encouragement, Father, to take it out to the world and to expect that uh, there will be those who will hear it and receive it. May we be attentive to that mission that you've handed us, Father, obedient to it. And, Father, as your word tells us, may we uh, look expectantly each day of our lives for your return. May we know that it is promised and it will certainly come and we are living our lives as if it were now and not someday in the future. Praise you, and I thank you for the study. May the men and women who have gathered tonight have the freedom to return next week according to your will, so that we may return to your study in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.